Hey everybody, CJ here, your one-man revolution, guerrilla scholar warrior, and renaissance man for the New Dark Age. Back from a bit of a hiatus for my trip to the Emerald Isle, and this is episode 103 of the Dangerous History Podcast. This will be the fifth installment of listener emails, where I respond to questions and comments from you, the listener, that come in through things like email and also sometimes social media as well. Before I launch into the episode, though, I have to give some Patreon shoutouts, some big thank yous to some awesome individuals who have signed up to support the show over at Patreon since the last episode I recorded. Big thank yous to Alex, to Brian, to Chris, and to Ole or Ali, not sure how to say it, please forgive me. But thank you all very much for stepping up to help support the Dangerous History Podcast on a per-episode donation via patreon.com slash profcj. I hope you'll consider signing up to support the show that way as well, if you've not already. Remember, if you sign up for any amount per episode donation, I'll thank you by name in the next episode that I produce. And in addition, if you've signed up for at least a dollar per episode donation, and by all means, I'm happy uh, if you sign up for more, but for just a minimum of a dollar per episode donation, you'll also have access to special bonus Dangerous History podcast episodes that are available to those Patreon supporters at a buck or more per episode and are available nowhere else. So it's a win-win. You get to help this show that presumably you like if you're considering supporting it financially, help the show continue to keep going and to grow, and you also get a little bit of extra Dangerous History podcast every now and then. Also, go to profcj.org slash donate for other ways you can help out the show, such as a PayPal donation, a Bitcoin donation, or simply purchasing things, doing your Amazon shopping by first going through any of my affiliate links, and we get a small commission on that. I just want to say a few words about my trip to Ireland first before I jump into answering listener questions, because a few people have already asked, you know, how the trip went. And if you follow me on Twitter, you've already seen some of the pictures. When I had occasional access to Internet while I was there, I tried to tweet a few pictures. And I have to say, while it was a bit exhausting at times because we had a very full itinerary, overall, it was a wonderful trip. I'm very glad I went. Overall, it was a good group of people that we were traveling with. We had a few hassles here and there, a few snafus here and there, but nothing horrible and on balance, still a great trip. Ireland is a beautiful country. To a Florida boy like me, the rolling hills and stony mountains and cliffs and all that kind of stuff are just absolutely breathtaking. Personally, I've never been anywhere else that had landscape like that. And the reputation of the Irish people for generally being very friendly and warm and and all that sort of stuff, I found to be mostly very well deserved. Vast majority of the people I talked to and interacted with there were extremely nice people. We visited lots of wonderful historical sites, both from modern and from medieval and even ancient history. We hit all over the island, uh, south, north, east, and west, especially west. We spent, a fair, we spent a good chunk of our time along Ireland's west coast, working our way down from the northwest to the southwest. And it was just a wonderful trip. We were in Dublin for a few days to start with before we went around the rest of the island. And Dublin is a cool city. And it was especially cool to be there right around the time of the centennial anniversary of the 1916 Easter Rising that I covered in the last Dangerous History podcast episode I made before I went on the trip. So that was really cool. We even had a chance to take 
a special historical tour about the 1916 Rising, where they they bust you around in a specially uh, decorated bus to various sites from the Rising, and, and in very dramatic fashion told you all about what happened and so on. It was great. And because of the centennial in many parts of Ireland, but especially in Dublin, where, where the, the heart of the Rising was, there was a lot of flags and patriotic paraphernalia and so on on display commemorating this. And I have to say that Irish nationalism is perhaps more like what I would consider a more, more benign patriotism than, say, American nationalism currently. The way I, I differentiate between patriotism and nationalism is that patriotism is the far more benign alternative. Patriotism is sort of a natural, sentimental attachment to your homeland and the, the geography, the culture, the people, the history that you're from, assuming you like all that stuff that you're from, there's, there's a natural human tendency to have a sentimental attachment to a lot of that stuff. And in and of itself, I don't think that's a bad thing. But when it gets co-opted and perverted into full-blown nationalism, which is often done by state authorities looking to exploit you to get you to, to support wars and to join the military and to pay more taxes to bomb people you've never even had a problem with through propaganda and quote-unquote education, you turn normal, healthy, relatively benign patriotism into nationalism. And nationalism is more about attacking or bashing or degrading others and, you know, puffing up your chest and feeling like you're awesome just because of the piece of dirt you happen to be from. And it's much more dangerous and unhealthy and so on, I would say. So what I saw in Ireland, for the most part, I saw and heard what was more like patriotism, more like we the people of Ireland like our country we have a sentimental attachment to the culture, the, the landscape, etc. We're happy that we got, at least for the 26 counties that currently are the Republic, we got rid of British rule finally, and we're happy to be who we are. And at least in my experience, I saw and heard very little or even nothing that smacked of, we're the Irish, we're the best people in the world, and you know we need to kick other people's asses and otherwise degrade other people periodically to prove how awesome we are. That wasn't there, which smacks more of current American nationalism to me. And so I, th I think possibly that Irish nationalism or patriotism more accurately, as it currently exists, is probably more similar to what American patriotism was like in the early generations right after the War of Independence, before it got warped into full-blown nationalism and, and we have to crush other people periodically to show how awesome we are. So anyway, those are just some of my thoughts and my observations from the trip. Now let's launch into some of your emails. And the first one comes from Skip, and he's asking me to address Islam. Skip writes, I think it remiss not to take on Islam. Right now, Islam is a threat to Western civilization and culture, including its spin-offs such as freedom of speech and religion, gender equality, and other individual liberties. Time after time, Islam has been able to set limits on freedom of speech, etc., in a manner that Judeo-Christian religions cannot. The intimidation and bullying has created a level of fear that curtails our traditional liberties. These are lines drawn by the media, etc., when it comes to Islam that do not exist for any other religion. How about addressing what is almost certainly an existential threat to the type of thought and reasoning you regularly put out on your podcast episodes? Okay, I'm, I'm happy to address this, Skip. Thanks for the question. 
And first and foremost, without any hesitation or qualification, I will state, in case it's not obvious, that I very much oppose pretty much everything, certainly that groups like Al-Qaeda or IS stand for, and absolutely I'm opposed to any really hardcore fundamentalist Muslim that feels that they have the right to force their preferences on anybody else against their will. No question. That said, I'm not sure from a purely logistical and mean standpoint that these groups are really capable at present or in the foreseeable future of being a genuinely existential threat to what freedoms there are in places like the United States or perhaps Western Europe. Do they have the capabilities to hurt some people and even kill some people? Clearly. But the level of existential threat, I think, is just not where their capabilities are. They're not even remotely in the league of something like, say, the armies of the Nazis or the the Russian communists, you know, when the USSR was at its height. Things like that are at least closer, and oftentimes their capabilities were exaggerated back then, you know, to justify increases in defense spending during the Cold War. You know, in the case of the Russians, oftentimes the, both both their capabilities and their intentions were exaggerated in order to keep the, the military-industrial complex budget up. But that said, I, I would say that something like the Soviet Red Army in its prime is something much more capable of being an existential threat to, say, the American way of life, such as it is, than to that that is much more realistically a potential major threat than the capabilities of even the most capable of the Islamic extremist groups, such as Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Let me also say that while I'm definitely opposed to extremist or fundamentalist or whatever you want to call it, Islam or Islamism, I also know that not all Muslims are like that. And I'm not, I'm not willing to throw them all in together because I personally know a few very good, very pro-liberty Muslims, and I know of more, you know, that I don't know personally. And so I'm not willing to label that entire group as being dangerous or a problem or a threat or anything like that. So to me, the real question when you're looking at the elements of the Muslim world that that are genuinely um, aggressive or threatening or that, you know, don't believe at all in any amount of personal freedom. And, you know, we could argue endlessly about, about what percentage that is. I don't have an answer for you, and I don't trust anyone who says they know for sure. But to me, on the practical level is what should or shouldn't be done about this. And here, for the sake of these remarks, I'm going to be speaking some a, a fair amount of the time within the status paradigm. In other words, since at the moment we have a government, we have the U.S. government, and you know, Western Europe has their various governments, I'm going to be looking at if the goal was really to reduce Islamic extremism and fundamentalism and the support for it, what really would be the wise thing to be doing or not doing, if that's really the goal? And I'm not so certain that reducing the threat and support for the threat of and support for the most extreme elements of Islam is really the goal of governments in America and Western Europe. I think they get a lot of good stuff from having that threat, that boogeyman always there, and having the population alarmed about it. 
Well, the first thing I would say that would characterize my approach to the problem is something along the lines of this quote from the Taoist sage Lao Tzu, which is, give evil nothing to oppose, and it will disappear by itself. Now, that's a deceptively simple statement that is easy to not really get. It's easy to sort of misinterpret, to only think about it superficially and sort of think, well, you know, if some guy's jumping me in an alley and I simply don't fight back, that's not going to work. I don't think that's what Lao Tzu was advocating. I think he was talking more about societal evils and that sort of thing. And so, you know, one way I would apply that statement, give evil nothing to oppose and it will disappear by itself, I would point to, say, the violent, dangerous drug cartels from Mexico, South America, and so on, and say, yeah, these are horrible people. I'm a proponent of all drugs being legal, completely legal, and all that. Not because I like drug cartels, but exactly the opposite. Drug, drug cartels are murderous thugs and criminals, and I don't think, based on both understanding the theory of this and also understanding the history of the actual working out of this in practice, I don't think the solution to defeating the horrible drug cartels is to simply amp up the war on drugs and to, to use more firepower and more aggression and more rigorous enforcement and all that and try to kill all the drug lords because that sh history shows that doesn't work. Every t it's like a hydra. You, you take out one kingpin and two more take his place. And I firmly believe that the best way to defeat these horrible drug cartels would be simply to legalize everything completely because it's the illegality of these products, which is currently the real source of the money and power going to these evil cartels because it's a black market operation. And I would say that there's an analogous situation. It's not identical, but it's analogous when you're looking at the parts of the world that are mostly Islamic and what factors and what actions do or don't drive more of those people, many of whom might left to their own devices be quite moderate and quite open to modernization, what drives them to being supportive of the more extreme and fundamentalist and potentially even violent among them? And is there something analogous to legalizing drugs to take away the power of the cartels that would take away the power and the support from the more dangerous and extreme elements of Islam? And I would say that a big part of it would be to stop all of the attacks into those countries, stop all of the interventions, the regime overthrows, the drone strikes, the bombings, with all the damage these things do to completely innocent bystanders, and how often that drives people who otherwise would, would potentially be quite rational and moderate on a lot of things, drives them into, in, in, in their, their pain and their desire for revenge, which is completely human and understandable, drives them to, in many cases, start supporting the, the worst elements among that, among that population. In other words, to do or not do various things to try and bring about a situation in which there is the best environment for the people who actually are part of the Islamic world to moderate and modernize and whatever else you want to say, a lot of their interpretations of their, their religious texts and so on. So Bill Bupert has argued, including on my show when he was a guest, that the central elements of an insurgency, which a lot of the 
violent elements of Islamism right now are basically in the form of an insurgency or fourth generation warfare, the essential elements in keeping an insurgency going and, and eventually leading it to success are grievances, narrative and legitimacy. And so I would say if one responds to the threats of extreme Islamism with more drone strikes, more bombings, more invasions, more overthrow of regimes, etc., more torture, that one is only going to strengthen the mass support of average Muslims for these most dangerous elements. And there's even a smaller scale but somewhat similar situation if you look over at history in Northern Ireland. There was, on, on several occasions, there have been cases where very radical Irish nationalists who may have been willing to do violence, even what people might consider terrorism, had very little support of the populace. And then the British authorities cracked down so hard and tried to solve it simply through military and police state, through military and police state means that they ended up driving huge numbers of people in Northern Ireland who previously had simply wanted to peacefully demonstrate to get some basic civil rights reforms into supporting the most radical and violent among the IRA. You can see this in response to the Bloody Sunday Massacre of 1972, prior to which much of Northern Ireland's Catholic population was much more interested in kind of moderate civil rights reforms, after which many of them increasingly started supporting groups like the IRA. In addition, in trying to fight against the IRA and groups like that in Northern Ireland, one of the things the British authorities did was mass internment without trial of thousands and thousands of people in Northern Ireland, not based on any proof that they were terrorists. In fact, the British government even said it was really preemptive. The idea is let's lock up thousands of people so they can't join the IRA. Not that they're already members and they're up to something. We don't even want them to have the possibility to join. Well, what happens when you take thousands and thousands of totally innocent people who were not involved in any terrorism and you lock them up in prison camps? Well, a lot of them are like, you know, I wasn't a radical, I wasn't a terrorist before, but these these SOBs are locking me up for nothing. And so, you know what, Where, where's the nearest IRA officer? I, I want to sign up, right? And so I think there's a similar dynamic at play in the Islamic world. The more that the West tries to solve the problem with death and firepower and so on, the more you're just going to drive a lot more people who previously had not supported the extreme groups into supporting them out of a desire for revenge and so on and so forth. So I don't know because Skip didn't specify if he has any ideas as to who should deal with this problem or how it should be dealt with. But my thoughts are that more of the same or higher quantity of the same as far as invasions and bombings and drone strikes and whatever is not going to work if the goal is actually to reduce support and thus reduce the incidence of violence amongst the most radical elements of islam then just continuing or just increasing the war on terror is flat out not going to work it's counterproductive and i would especially stress I don't trust the United States government to keep anyone safe from radical Islam on anything resembling a consistent basis. They have a long history of directly and indirectly, whether it's deliberate as some people think or 
just a, a side effect of incompetence, as other people think, or as I think, it's sometimes one or the other, depending on which you're looking at. The U.S. government has a long history of helping out and enabling the most dangerous, radical elements of the Islamic world. Just to point to one example, and there are many others, but the U.S. government is best buddies with and is extremely supportive of Saudi Arabia, which is supportive of a lot of the more dangerous strands within Islam. At the same time, the U.S. government has tried to overthrow the only secular regimes in the Arab world and has succeeded in two out of three cases. They successfully helped overthrow Saddam in Iraq and Gaddafi in Libya. And in both cases, what ended up filling the void as tons of people who actually are experts on the history and culture of those places could have told you beforehand is that oftentimes it's the most violent, dangerous, psychotic groups that move in to fill the void left by those secular dictatorships. And people like Saddam and Gaddafi, they're not good guys. I don't want to live under their government. But at the same time, they were enemies of the more extreme fundamentalist Muslim terrorist groups. And of course, the U.S. government is heavily involved in trying to overthrow Assad, the other significant secular regime in the Arab world, and they've been involved in trying to overthrow him for years now, even though he, like Gaddafi, has actually, on multiple occasions, been helpful against the terrorists. So I'm extremely skeptical that if anyone is up to the job of trying to reduce the threat of radical Islam and reduce its capabilities and support, that the U.S. government is, is the group that's up to the job. They've demonstrably proven that they're not terribly interested in actually doing that, and uh, they're, they're not very competent at doing that anyway, even if they wanted to, which I'm not sure they do. I think there are things that potentially a government could do to try and reduce this problem. I doubt very much, based on who's in it and its track record and, and so on, that the U.S. government is capable of doing these things. I think theoretically they're possible, but I don't think the U.S. government is going to do the things to make this stuff actually get better, at least not in the foreseeable future. It, not only because everyone running for major office believes mostly the same things as far as keeping the war on terror going, but also because even if you did elect a lot of different people to the Congress, and even if you did have a president elected who was willing to rethink a lot of these policies, you still would run into the problem of most of what constitutes the U.S. government are career people who cannot be fired under almost any circumstances. So even if you replaced the president with someone with new ideas and replaced a lot of the Congress with people who thought differently, you still would run into the problem of the just, I mean, if you add them all up, it must be in the millions of people who work at the State Department, at the Defense Department, at the CIA, in the military, etc., etc., etc. Those would all be the same people in place doing stuff, even if you replaced most of the people in the elective offices. And so I think it's very unlikely that the U.S. government ever will try to seriously change its approach to dealing with this stuff even though it might theoretically be possible for them to do so if they really wanted to. Again, from within the status paradigm, right, for the sake of argument, if the U.S. government was serious about harming and weakening and reducing and fighting radical Islam, again, from within their paradigm, I'm saying, they would at the very least put some sort of sanctions on Saudi Arabia. 
and they would stop trying to undermine and overthrow every secular regime in the Arab world. They'd stop helping various Islamic extremist groups with finances and logistics and weapons and so on. Again and again, a lot of the groups the U.S. government sponsors and sends weapons to and so on end up turning out to be the real crazies, the real terrorists. So, to me, the last thing you would want to do is give more power and more to do to the U.S. government in terms of intervening in the Islamic world, given their track record. By the way, there's a new book by Andrew Basevich, former Army colonel, um, who's written a number of, of really good books and lots of great articles over the years, critical of U.S. foreign policy. And the new book is something like America's War for the Greater Middle East, I think is the title or something like it. I'll put it as one of the Amazon affiliate links for this episode's show notes. And I've gotten it on Kindle. I'm just a little ways into reading it, but so far it's very good stuff. Very detailed history on the history of American intervention into the Islamic world, starting with Jimmy Carter in the 70s. That's where he starts it. And he argues that that's really the beginning of American involvement in the greater Middle East in a huge way that kind of what we're used to today, that prior to that, yeah, the U.S. you know had some involvement and, and dabbled here and there, but it wasn't really a big deal. And Basevich is, is very much opposed to more interventionism as the solution to the problems there. But he's extremely knowledgeable guy, retired army officer, you know, very, very knowledgeable historian and so on. So it's very good stuff. And he's a great writer, too. So that's where I would point someone if you want a lot of detailed history on about the last 40 years or so of America's interventions into the Islamic world and how screwed up they've been and how counterproductive a lot of them have been. Now, in fourth generation warfare, which is really what a lot of this conflict with these these groups amounts to. In fourth generation warfare, trying to win with more firepower and destruction is ultimately counterproductive because it multiplies your enemies faster than you can kill them because you end up driving more people into supporting the most radical, violent groups. And I'll link in the show notes for this episode to some articles about the stuff that I also linked to back when I had Bill Bupert on. But cracking down harder, using more firepower, being more aggressive, when you're dealing with this sort of an opponent, it simply drives more people who were on the fence or previously were, were not in favor of the crazies, drives more people into their camp, to supporting them in various ways, whether volunteering themselves or devoting money or otherwise helping out. You see this again and again and again um, in any country where a state tries to crack down on a popularly popularly supported insurgency. Oftentimes, a state cracks down and tries to use firepower to solve an insurgency that's not even that much supported by the populace. And what happens is, in the process of the crackdown and the firepower, the state actually makes it into a popularly supported insurgency. So I don't think the solution to the threat of whatever you want to call it, radical Islam, Islamism, whatever, is one that is, we just need more invasions. We need more drone strikes. We need more firepower. I know that emotionally, viscerally, that's what a lot of people want to do when there's an attack or a threat or whatever. But the actual history shows that that's really not productive if the goal is to reduce the threat, much as it may be satisfying on a visceral level to try to do that stuff. 
on this, I would agree with Thaddeus Russell's suggestion, which he talked about a little bit when I had him on the show a while back, which is sort of a, a two-pronged approach. If you really want the what today is considered the, the Islamic world to modernize a little, secularize a bit, become a little bit more in kind of the better sense of the word progressive on, on things, it's unrealistic to expect that these people are going to wholeheartedly throw aside their religion entirely. But, you know, can you can you get them to moderate and modernize more, um, not not by force, but, but just by helping to bring about conditions that allow those sorts of changes to be more possible in that part of the world? Because to me, there's kind of two options, right? Because using more firepower and more force only strengthens support for the worst elements. It's just a natural action-reaction sort of a thing. And so to me, there are ultimately two options. It's not realistic to expect a billion people or whatever to totally change their religion because of, of an outside threat. It's maybe realistic to expect them to modernize and moderate and so on, but there have to be the right conditions in place for that to be possible. The only other alternative I can see is literally genocide, because firepower only increases support for the extremists up until the point of genocide. Now, I don't think anybody is realistically advocating genocide other than, you know, genuinely crazy people, right? So to me, I, I think I would hope that we would all look at genocide as not a good solution to the problem we face interacting with Islamic extremism and that more firepower, more offense, anything short of genocide is simply going to increase the support for the, for the more extreme groups. So how do you how do you create conditions wherein it becomes possible and much more likely for changes to occur from within the Islamic community to reduce the hold of the fundamentalists and kind of create the conditions wherein more people and there are already plenty of them, don't get me wrong. I, I I'm very aware of them, but where more people from the Islamic world can kind of modernize a bit more and say, okay, we're going to keep, you know, certain aspects of our tradition and our beliefs, but the the more militant, violent things, whatever, we're going to downplay them. Because the reality is, if you look in the Bible, there are plenty of passages you can find that are very aggressive, very violent, very totalitarian. And yet the vast majority of modern day Christians and Jews don't take those passages literally anymore. And so you've got to wonder, you know, what happened? What what conditions and historical evolutions occurred that caused most Christians and Jews to, in the last few centuries, decide not to take literally some of the more anti-modern ideas in the Bible? Why do modern-day Christians and Jews typically, for example, not stone their children to death when those children are disobedient? So anyway, getting back to what Thaddeus Russell has suggested— that I think there's a lot of merit to. Um, on the one hand, militarily disengage from the Middle East. In other words, remove that outside threat that is driving people to support the extremists and the fundamentalists so much. At the same time, simply sit back and let things like pop culture, Hollywood, rock and rap music, 
pornography, other aspects of Western culture, the things that people consider the morally decadent side of Western culture. But that's what people around the world often really want the most from places like the United States is that stuff, the pop culture, the TV, the movies, etc. Let that stuff, the exports that people around the world still really, really do want from America, let all that stuff nonviolently erode fundamentalist Islam. That is, Russell talked about how in a lot of parts of the world, like Iran, where, you know, there's a hardcore Islamic government and supposedly everyone's on the same page with that. But the reality is there's lots of people, oftentimes illegally, watching South Park, watching porn, watching all these things because of the internet and satellite TV and so on. And so if you increase the availability of that one way or another, nonviolently, and simultaneously disengage, militarily stop all the interventions into these parts of the world. You remove the plausibility of the grievances, narrative, and legitimacy of the extremist groups while kind of letting the more quote-unquote decadent aspects of Western culture do their work. Because those are the sorts of things, I think, that have caused most modern-day Christians and Jews to not be extreme fundamentalists. By taking away the grievances and the narrative from the extremists, you take away the mass support for the real fundamentalist, problematic version of Islam. Whereas, by contrast, if you keep up, or even worse, amp up, the bombings, the drone strikes, the occasional invasions and regime changes— then that's going to be like fighting fire with fire, or perhaps even fighting fire with gasoline. It will only drive more people into the arms of the extremists. Islam, it's true, overall, seems to be a bit behind most versions of Christianity on the idea of separation of church and state and all that goes along with it. Though, let's be fair, plenty of extreme Christian fundamentalists, they're not most Christians, but, you know, numerically, fair number of the more extreme Christians actually would love to undo things like separation of church and state, things like freedom of speech, things like freedom of religion, things like women's rights. A lot of fundamentalist Christians, if they had the ability to politically, would absolutely undo a lot of those same things. Let's not kid ourselves. Now, why is Islam overall, looking at the totality, more that way, at least at the moment, than Christianity? Well, I I don't think the reasons for this are easy to lay out entirely. I think they're complex and debatable. But in my mind, in order for some sort of wide-scale reformation, modernization, moderation, whatever you want to call it, movement, to sweep through the Islamic world, it's going to have to come from within those communities. If it's imposed from outside by force, it will never really take root. It will never be seen as legitimate. And to try to impose a reformation from outside by force will, I believe, actually push more Muslims into the extremist camp. Now, it's one thing if they're voluntarily choosing to do things like consume Western TV and movies and pop culture and music and porn, and they're choosing that stuff on their own, and then that's having the effect of eroding some of the more extreme fundamentalist beliefs they might have. That, to me, is is doable, sustainable, might work. But if you're trying to just invade, occupy, and force at gunpoint these people to modernize and secularize more, that's just not how human beings work. When you try and simply impose by force from outside a preference on a people— 
the natural tendency of most people most of the time is to backlash against it. Now, my overall take on religion, I have to say, as someone who is not religious and who's just sort of a philosophical Taoist, but I don't believe in any of the theologies or supernatural aspects of any religion. But that said, I don't have a problem with religious people just because they're religious. It depends on what they feel their religion is telling them to do or not do. So if someone is religious, but the main things they get from their religion is don't be a dick and to follow something along the lines of the non-aggression principle and be, be kind to your neighbor and so on, then I'm really not interested in investing a lot of effort to talk them out of their belief system. I've said before, I much prefer religious anarchists to atheist statists. So to me, it's unlikely and probably undoable to expect that you're going to convert a billion Muslims to being secular atheists. And to me, it's not even worth trying seriously, at least not at the present time. But more like, what can you do to create conditions that will allow more of them than at present to go more in the direction of keeping alive some of their beliefs and traditions, but kind of moving them in a more moderate and modern direction. Now, aside from some of the material I discussed with Bill Bupert on terrorism and the Basevich book, on this subject, I'd also recommend anyone interested check out the film The Power of Nightmares, which was a BBC documentary that looks at the parallel history of the Islamists, the real, you know, fundamentalists on the one hand, and the American conservatives on the other, to see how these two groups have this interesting parallel history where they play into each other and feed off of each other and so on. It's fascinating stuff. So The Power of Nightmares, also interesting, worth checking out in relation to some of this stuff, is a book called Dying to Win by Robert Pape. And this book is about suicide terrorism. It's an extensive empirical study looking at many, many cases of suicide terrorism around the world throughout history and looking at what seem to be the commonalities between instances of suicide terrorism, what seem to be the decisive variables that cause someone to do this. And what he concludes as a result of this is that those who engage in suicide terrorism are, above all else, motivated by the presence of foreign armies in their midst. They're more motivated by this than they are by religion in and of itself. Now, if they happen to be religious, they'll express those grievances verbally in kind of religious language particular to their faith. But the real decisive variable based on Pape's extensive empirical studies is foreign occupation, People who have a powerful foreign occupation among them who feel oppressed and so on by this, those people are more likely to engage in suicide attacks than those who are not facing that situation, even if they are of similar religions or belief systems. So suicide terrorism is probably the most extreme form of behavior that can be engaged by, for example, extreme Islamists. So I would say if foreign invasion and occupation are the real root, the best explanatory variable for those sorts of behaviors, then to me it seems at least plausible that stopping all of the intervention and occupation and so on into these parts of the world would lead to a reduction of other undesirable forms of behavior as well. So those are just my thoughts. Again, the just to, to reiterate my main points, not all Muslims are the extreme crazies. I think we all know this. 
I don't believe that more force, more firepower, etc., is going to solve the problem of the extremists. And I think better way to do that would be to disengage militarily for the most part, and then kind of allow the more decadent parts of Western civilization to insidiously help propel people into a more moderate, modern sort of version of Islam in that part of the world. Next email comes from Dikon, and it also covers something that ties into a question I got from Jeff on Facebook. So Dikon asked for my thoughts on the alt-right and on the social justice warriors, or SJWs, of the present day. And um, interestingly, within plus or minus a couple of days from that email, I got a message from Jeff on Facebook asking me about whether I thought the current state of American politics and discourse bears significant resemblance to the Weimar Republic in Germany in the 1920s and early 1930s. So to me, these two questions are very closely connected, and I decided I'd answer them both sort of together in a one-two. So if you don't know, the alt-right, that's an abbreviation of alternative right, they are a, you can Google this or Wikipedia or whatever to get the, the Cliff Notes version, but basically they're a group among the right who reject some of the more mainstream aspects of right-wing or conservative politics in favor of something that's more quote-unquote extreme. And one of the things that seems to define them is that they are more comfortable being open with attitudes such as racism. Now, like anything else, there's some amount of diversity and some disagreement within the alt-right. And there seems to be a spectrum that, that runs from kind of a more milder camp that's just anti-immigration and against kind of PC multiculturalism to more extreme elements within the alt-right that are just flat-out white supremacist or something along those lines. Interestingly, from what I see, pretty much all of the alt-right along that spectrum has have come out in favor of candidate Donald Trump for president. Now, I'm not saying everyone who supports Trump is a white supremacist. I am saying, though, it's kind of interesting that virtually all white supremacists seem to be coming out in favor of Trump. The alt-right, they're also opposed to free trade and things like this. So anyway, you, you can look up more on them if you want to, to get a better feel for this, if you're not already familiar with the term. And then we have the SJWs, the social justice warriors. These are the super duper militant and aggressive, politically correct police, the ones that South Park was making fun of in the series they did with uh, PC Principal and all that stuff. And these are the people who want to scream at you, demonstrate at you, blacklist you, perhaps even have legal things against you if they can, if they can, if you say anything that they perceive to be even the slightest bit racist, bigoted, homophobic, etc. Well, anyway, I'll, I'll give some of my thoughts on the SJWs first, because I don't like either of these groups, and I'm not comfortable with either one. The SJWs, in my view, began with some legitimate points and grievances and things like that. But what happened is what almost always happens with people, and that is they vastly overcorrect or overcompensate and go to the opposite extreme to the point where they're far beyond any original intention. So I'd be fine with someone saying, I don't like racist or homophobic or sexist or whatever assholes. And I don't want to socialize with them, and I don't want to do business with them, etc. 
And if I, if I know somebody who's who's a real racist or homophobic or whatever asshole, I kind of want to ostracize them and have nothing to do with them. Okay, I'm good with that. That's fine. But then they go to the extreme of the slightest little thing is perceived as being like Hitlerian. You know, the mildest little remark, no matter how innocently intended, can be taken as evidence that you are a bloodthirsty racist hate monger and you need to have significant punishments exacted on you. You should lose your job. You should have to go through some sort of sensitivity training. You should be blacklisted. You should be publicly harangued. You should be bothered and shouted at everywhere you go. If possible, legal sanctions should be visited upon you for saying something. And it gets to the point where people are trying to attack someone for not using the right gender-neutral pronoun and this sort of nonsense. And so I think it started from a place that was reasonable and, and somewhat justified in some cases of, hey, don't be a dick, and has just turned into insanity and turned into a caricature of itself. And they, they've lost all ability, the SJWs, to make distinctions between genuine genuinely hateful things and things that are really not and things where someone might just you know have said something a little insensitive or whatever i mean i've heard ridiculous examples where in some of the more extreme colleges in america if you ask somebody where they're from that is considered a a horrible affront to sensitivity and racist and whatever just asking someone where they're from that kind of absurdity on the other hand, you have the alt-right. I don't like the SJWs very much at all, but the alt-right are themselves, in my eyes, an overcorrection, an overcompensation against the SJWs. A lot of the alt-right, I won't say all because it's always, you know, I'm sure there are exceptions, but a lot of the alt-right seems to be genuinely racist and genuinely bigoted. And they're sort of saying, well, we don't like uh, political correctness. We don't like the SJWs. And I'm like, yeah, I don't either. I, I think they go way too far and whatever. But then the alt-right, their response is, so let's be unapologetic, racist, bigoted assholes. Well, I I don't like the idea of being forced into the choice of you've either got to be a caricature of PC principle from South Park, or you've got to be an actual bigoted asshole. I don't want to be either of those two things. I don't want to associate with either of those two groups. It's extremism in a bad way, in the sense of, like, neither side wants people to be fair and reasonable on these issues. And so I'm really uncomfortable with both of those groups, the SJWs and the alt-right. And at the end of the day, I have to say, both the SJWs and the alt-right are collectivists. And I guess the root of why I'm very troubled by both of them is that ultimately I'm against all forms of collectivism, whether it's some sort of white nationalism or whether it's some form of the opposite of that, of, you know, all all women and minorities and, and gays are all victims all the time and all white cisgender males are evil oppressors and so on. Like, I'm not interested in any of those forms of collectivism. My goal in life is to be fair to everybody as much as I can, to not be a dick, to not be a bigot, but at the same time to not go insane over that and to not accuse people of of being hateful individuals for 
you know, little mild remarks and things that many people would see as not being bigoted at all. Now, how does this connect to, to Weimar? Well, I think you see it in this little divide over the SJWs and alt-right, and you see it also in kind of the political realm in general, and that is you have a lot of parallels to Weimar Germany because what happened in Weimar Germany was, as time went on, more and more people gravitated politically to being either communists or being Nazis. And it got to a point where by the early 30s, that was like the only game in town in a lot of ways. In Germany, you had to either, you had to pick sides. You had to either be a communist or a Nazi. And if you were somebody who really didn't like either of those two groups, you were just sort of left, you know, politically, ideologically homeless. And are trends like that occurring, at least on some levels in America today? I think so. I think there are a lot of parallels it's not 100%. It's, it never is. History doesn't repeat itself, but it does often rhyme, as Mark Twain said. I think there are a lot of parallels with current-day America and Weimar Republic Germany. Things like, you've got a society with economic problems, you've got a society with a government that doesn't seem at all to be quote-unquote working to anybody, and that a lot of people of all sorts of ideologies believe this government doesn't really represent them and their best interests. And simultaneously in this atmosphere, you've got lots of demagogues of various sorts eager to point blame, occasionally at some of the right places, but far more often at scapegoats who aren't really the source of the problem. And these same demagogues are happily whipping this up. They're encouraging people to bifurcate into two opposed extreme camps, neither of which bode well for things like liberty. And these demagogues are looking to ride these resentments and this polarization to power, and they're not at all interested in the horrible side effects that might happen because of all this stuff going on and all this demagoguery. Yes, that's where I see parallels between Weimar Germany and present-day America. And it's troubling, it's foreboding, because it didn't end well for Germany. It ended in the rise to power of the Nazis, all the horrible things they did, and ultimately World War II in Europe. And it ended with Germany being crushed and invaded and occupied and, you know, millions of innocent German civilians that were not ardent Nazis or anything like that ended up dying in the process of that. Now, am I saying that current American politics and discourse is inevitably going to lead to the rise of something horrible and, and to all these negative consequences? No, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't say for sure. I'm saying the possibility in an atmosphere like we currently have exists, and the possibility is perhaps a little bit higher in this atmosphere than if things were kind of mellow and easygoing right now. And that if you're someone who's not one of these right-wing or left-wing crazies, if you're someone who believes in things like being reasonable and rational and individualism and all the kind of basic personal freedoms then it certainly is a bad moon rising. Exactly how bad it will be, I don't know. But I think given the way things are and the way people are responding to this, right? Because having crises, having economic problems and a government that's really, you know, breaking down in a lot of ways could be a wonderful opportunity to advance freedom and rationality. But unfortunately, given the state of so much of the American people when it comes to those things, it's not likely to lead to those things. It seems like it's more likely to lead to worse things rising in the ideological realm. So yeah, long story short, alt-right and SJWs, in my view, both not good. 
both troubling, both collectivist, both in, in each in their own way, very authoritarian. America parallels to Weimar Germany, yes, many, and it's a bit troubling. Now, I've got a couple of emails I'm going to respond to next from Brett. One from a while back and one very recently. And it's been so long since I did a listener emails episode that, you know, within that window of time, he managed to get in two good questions, both of which I wanted to use. And the first one I actually responded to with a full length email that I wrote back to him. But then I also asked, hey, can I share your email question and my response to it on the next listener email show? And he said, yes. So here it goes. So this is from uh, Brett's email to me. I was finishing up episode 96, and you're talking about South Carolina and how it had some of the most lax slave laws then turned into one of the strictest. Do you think it is in line with human behavior that if you have the most freedom, you stand to swing to the opposite side the most, similar to positions of the U.S. today versus its inception? And then he also wrote, do you think technology is helping or hurting that operation? So here's the email I sent back to him, and I'm just going to go ahead and read this. I think you're onto something, that there is sort of a pendulum effect we can see in cases like that of colonial South Carolina, and for that matter, the history of the United States federal government. What began as one of the most minimalist of all modern states has grown into the largest and most powerful state ever in human history. When looking at a government, I think a big factor is that if you start with a very limited state, you'll end up with a lot of prosperity that the state can then use to feed and enrich itself, sort of like a parasite that starts off with a very large and healthy host. It'll likely lead eventually to a large and healthy parasite at the expense of the health of the host. I'm not the first one by a long shot to make this argument, but I think it's correct. But I think there's more to it than just economics feeding state growth. I think there's also a psychological element on the part of the elites. When there's a lot of freedom, even for the masses, it will lead to some genuine trickling down of comforts previously only reserved to the elites. The elites then get annoyed with the masses enjoying those same quote-unquote luxuries and start to preach the virtues of asceticism asceticism, even though they themselves don't often follow that asceticism. That is, Russell covers different variations of this in Renegade History of the United States, including the Founding Fathers' obsession with lower-class Americans' appetites for luxury and vices, even though many of the founders themselves were big into those same vices. To the early 20th century progressives, angst that the working classes in cities were going to the cinema and Coney Island. And more recently, I'd point, I'd point to the modern environmentalist movement among the elites, people who fly everywhere in private jets, yet wave their fingers at us regular people and tell us we should ride a bicycle to work. So elites will try to take away access of the lower classes to luxury, even if doing so won't make them, the elites, any better off materially. Sort of a weird, downward-facing form of envy, I guess. It's not enough that the elites get to have access to luxury. They have to deny that access to those they consider beneath them, even if the economy is productive enough to financially allow the lower classes to access some luxuries. And I think that's part of what began the process in colonial South Carolina. Members of the master class were irked by the fact that some of their slaves were starting to have some economic success, wear decent clothes, etc., so they cracked down on it. This then caused resentment, which led to resistance and rebellion, which in turn caused greater crackdowns. 
By the way, side note, I didn't mention this in the email because this was actually before I did the the Patreon bonus episode on Haiti, but you see a similar thing in Haiti with the so-called free coloreds prior to the outbreak of the Haitian Revolution, where a lot of these free coloreds who were people of mixed race and also some just pure blacks who were not slaves in Haiti, and many of them became pretty prosperous. And the white French colonists in Haiti eventually came to resent this and passed a series of laws that basically limited the ability of free coloreds to wear nice clothes, live in nice areas and other things like that, simply so that the the white French colonists would, would no longer feel like, oh, the, the order of the universe is upset. These colored people are actually matching my standard of living. Anyway, back to my email. And there's also the element of the elites wanting to keep the lower orders dependent. That's the case when looking at masters and slaves, just as it is the case when looking at the relationship of present-day elites and lower classes. Rather than, for example, removing barriers to small-time, low-overhead entrepreneurship, which might actually result in a lot of today's lower classes being able to achieve a greater degree of economic self-sufficiency— much of today's elite would rather just up the lower class's welfare benefits because that will keep them in their place, meaning in a childlike state of dependency. As far as the influence of technology, I think it's both helping and hurting the cause of freedom. Helping because it's facilitating trade and communication among regular people to a greater degree than ever, hurting because it allows the elite to surveil and manipulate the masses in ways they couldn't before. There have been, for example, some interesting studies showing how something as simple as Google's algorithm and how things are ranked in a Google search can dramatically affect people's beliefs about a given topic. Whether that technology will be more positive or negative for freedom in the long run, I think, is up for grabs. End of my email. And then the second email I got from Brett in the last few weeks or months or whatever, this one I didn't send back a long response to, so I'll respond to it for the first time here. Um, Here is excerpt from Brett's email. Do you think at any point prior to World War One and prior to the Korean War that America stood a good chance of becoming an isolationist country that avoided entry into either or both wars? I know the America First movement was pretty big prior to Pearl Harbor, with Charles Lindbergh being a spokesman for it. Though after the president publicly humiliated him for his non-interventionist position, he gave up his status. I feel that once World War II got underway and the politicians and money people saw the impact the war had on quote-unquote improving the economy and the military-industrial complex really set in. My response is, I think I've addressed some of the stuff related to this question a little bit kind of in pieces. Um, Maybe way back in episode six, the large policy talking a little bit about this switch to becoming more aggressive and interventionist on the part of the American political establishment And I talked there about how in the late 19th century, American foreign policy began to be diverted from its relatively, it was never fully, but relatively more isolationist tradition toward a more imperialistic slash interventionist, especially globally, uh, policy by a small clique of elite people like Henry Cabot Lodge, Teddy Roosevelt, Alfred Mahan, etc. And all the indications I've seen are that a strong majority of average Americans at the time had no real interest in the imperial interventionist path, but they were dragged into it by various means. 
combination perhaps of false flags, media propaganda, and other things. Now, after World War I, there was, in the 1920s and 30s, a bit of a backlash against the war fever that had been whipped up during the era of World War I. I think I talked about this a bit in episode 39. I think that was the episode I did on an intro to the concept of historical revisionism. And I think somewhere in that episode, I may have talked a little bit about this backlash against interventionism that happened in the 20s and 30s, this this so-called isolationism, which, by the way, that term itself is a smear by the pro-war, pro-empire factions against people who didn't want America to be invading countries all the time. This time period, the 20s and 30s, was the time of things like the Nye Committee and the U.S. Senate investigating uh, war profiteering by American corporations during World War I, and the links between the, the banking establishment in particular investing in the French and British war effort and the ultimate decision of the American political elite to enter the war. This is also the time period of famously U.S. Marine Corps General Smedley Butler writing War is a Racket and exposing a lot of the war profiteering and the ulterior motives there. And also the time period of people who at the time were highly respected academics, such as Charles Beard and Harry Elmer Barnes, seriously questioning America's interventionist foreign policy and doing so in mainstream publications and being taken very seriously, though later these people get thrown under the bus as being anti-American closet Nazis and so on. But that, that backlash towards isolationism in the 20s and 30s ended up being only temporary. And World War II and the machinations of the British government in cahoots with FDR to get America into the war, and then, of course, the Pearl Harbor attack itself, these things all halted that trend, that backlash, and got the people like almost like flipping a switch quickly back to pro-war, pro-intervention, etc., and the U.S. government learned its lesson from the aftermath of World War I, the way there was so much anti-war, anti-interventionist writing and activism in the 20s and 30s. The U.S. government after World War II didn't want that to happen again. So after World War II, the U.S. government was much more vigilant about who it allowed access to historical archives And in addition, the big corporate foundations, especially Ford, Rockefeller, and Carnegie, which have always been heavily involved in funding American academia, which you might think, oh, that's so benevolent. They're trying to further knowledge and education. No, what they're really trying to do is to control the narrative in favor of the establishment, of which they are some of the greatest examples. So... By controlling so much money, foundations such as the Ford, Rockefeller, and Carnegie Foundations, they were able to use their financial pull to steer academic research, to nudge more intellectuals into supporting interventionism and framing the arguments and the paradigms in a way that was favorable to those causes. The amount of power you have if you're a major funder of academic research and publication and so on is tremendous. Because you get to decide which research and researchers get funded and which don't, which get published and which don't. And by being able to decide those things, you're able to exert a massive impact on what the ideological makeup of faculties at America's most important universities looks like. And by doing that, you're able to set the tone for generations 
of America's elite. If you can control, for the most part, the the big picture of the ideology of America's top 20 or 30 universities, you can then get people into those places as faculty who are of, quote-unquote, the right sort in terms of beliefs. Then you have literally decades of inculcating the younger generations of the elites, the best and brightest, in those same belief systems. So that's a big part of it, I think. Now, the fact that the end of World War II coincided, perhaps not coincidentally, with the beginnings of the Cold War, this was, of course, more fuel to the interventionist fire. And after decades of Cold War, the result was that the mind of much of the American populace had been so warped into an aggressive, paranoid, us-versus-them global showdown mentality that even with the Cold War ending 25 years ago, it's been relatively easy, given the propaganda and ideological foundation that was laid, it's been relatively easy for the elite to keep the garrison state, national security state, military-industrial complex arrangement in place, full bore, ever since. And as far as the the pre-Korean War period, this was a transition period. The pre-Korean War period, say from like 1946 to 1949 or so, this was a period at which what is known now to us as the New Right, the conservatism of people like William F. Buckley, that brand of conservatism was just starting to overtake and replace what people now refer to as the old right, the more isolationist conservatism of the 30s and 40s, a group that, while not consistently libertarian, was pretty close and closer than any other group in modern mainstream American politics has ever been. And the increasing onslaught of the Buckleyite faction, combined with Dwight Eisenhower defeating Robert Taft, for the Republican Party nomination for president in 1952, these were major setbacks to the anti-war, anti-intervention old right. Murray Rothbard has a very interesting book about this stuff. I think Justin Raimondo has a good one as well. And basically over the course of the 1950s, between Robert Taft not being the Republican standard bearer in the 50s, and Buckley and all of his National Review writers, many of whom really should be considered proto-neocons, throwing the old right, the anti-war, anti-empire right under the bus, by the end of the 50s, American conservatism, which had previously been one of the most consistent places for anti-interventionist sentiment in American politics, had been transformed into the aggressive, war-hawk, imperialist conservatism that we all know today. That was pretty much accomplished by the end of the 50s. And I've got to say that, yeah, theoretically, there was a chance for the people who, prior to World War II, the American people often were instinctively anti-interventionist on some level, but ultimately they got steamrolled by the people who hold the power. Because the government itself, which benefits from a more interventionist foreign policy, is able to grab more power and wealth and prestige to itself because of that along with the big business interests that stand to profit from interventionism, war, and imperialism. And, of course, the media itself, which is perhaps redundant as one of those big business interests that stands to profit from interventionism. These different groups have done a hell of a job controlling information, 
controlling the narrative, and propagandizing much of the population into supporting endless war and interventionism and so forth. Between the media and then also very important public schooling, they're able to keep people from thinking outside the approved box. And so far, it's worked pretty well. The fact that they can also either stage or provoke various sorts of attacks and incidents from time to time that the media then dramatically hype up and portray as completely unprovoked, completely out of the blue attacks on people who just hate our freedom, that also just keeps the cycle growing. And I'll just make the point that once you have something, a a big make-work project that brings in a lot of special interests and employs a lot of people, such as the garrison state or the war on drugs or the national security slash surveillance state, any of these sorts of things, or even things not relating to military and defense and all that stuff like the Department of Agriculture's biggest programs and so on, Once you've got something like that done and in place for, say, maybe a generation or two, two things then really entrench it and make it damn near permanent. And the first is that lots of people become dependent on this thing continuing and growing for the sake of their personal spoils and livelihood. And the second is that people who can remember what life and the country was like before whatever big thing we're talking about, war on drugs, war on terror, Cold War, etc., national security state. Once a generation or two goes by, the people who can remember what it was like prior to this thing, they their memories fade, or perhaps they still remember, but nobody listens to them and nobody really cares, or, and or, I guess, they literally start to die off. And George Orwell talks about this phenomenon in 1984, where Winston Smith is trying to get real, trustworthy, first-hand accounts of what life was like before Big Brother and the party came in. Of course, all of the official coverage of it in Orwell's world, in, uh, sorry, Winston Smith's world, is party propaganda, just saying that life was absolutely awful, and then the party made everything wonderful, and he doesn't quite buy it. And then he has a hard time even finding anybody, A, who's old enough to remember before the party took over, and B, if they are old enough, are their memories actually intact? And so eventually, no one living remembers what it was like before. And I would say that the full-blown, full-time American garrison state, and all of the things that go along with it, such as the massive military-industrial complex, the, the endless archipelago of foreign bases scattered around the world, etc., 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 all the special interests that make tons of money off of this. It's really been nonstop since World War II. I mean, it used to be, before World War II, these things would amplify temporarily during a war, and then they would be slashed back very significantly once the war was over. They never went away entirely, but they would be slashed way back between wars. And ever since World War II, because of the Cold War, then followed by the so-called War on Terror, this crisis atmosphere, garrison-slash-national-security state and the military-industrial complex defeat it, these things have been ongoing and continuously growing since about 1940. And so... There are very few Americans currently alive who lived much of their life prior to 1940. And really, it it would be preferable if you really wanted to get impressions of what America was like prior to this change. You'd have to talk to someone who was at the very least a young adult 
prior to 1940. And that's very hard to come by. Somebody who's both who is both alive still, who was an adult prior to 1940, and whose memories are intact enough that they can talk to you about it. And so it's damn near impossible to come across anyone who can really tell you much about what America was like prior to full-fledged becoming Team America World Police, because you'd have to go back at least 75 years or more to get anything even resembling this. And at the start of the Cold War, there was an old right uh, businessman and activist named, I think, Ernest Weir, who gave a very prescient speech about this. And maybe in the future, I'll, I'll read this quote if I do an episode about the rise of the old of the rise of the new right kicking out the old right. And Ernest Weir was one of these old right kind of anti-war, anti-interventionist conservatives. And in the early years of the Cold War, he gave a speech where he was very prescient, warning about all of the things that were going to happen to America if it kept following the path of being world policemen. And one of the things he said in there was something to the effect of, if several generations go by in this continuous crisis atmosphere, in this continuous garrison state, there won't be anybody around who really knows what America was like before it. They will not really know the real America is how he put it, which is very interesting. So anyway, th those are some of my thoughts on that stuff. I might do something in the future about the transition from the more anti-war, anti-imperialist old right to the more aggressive new right. And I would probably look to books like Murray Rothbard's book, Betrayal of the American Right. And there's one by Justin Raimondo that I'm blanking out on the name. If I can remember it, I'll put it in the Amazon links for this show. And that, yeah, there's a lot of reason to think that a lot of the American people in general, the kind of average Joes, were not really gung-ho for war and imperialism, and that it was the elites in government, certain, not all, but certain business interests, and the media, who kind of, through various means, fair and foul, mostly foul, got the American people dragged into it. And once the American people were dragged into this, it becomes a self-perpetuating thing because interventions lead to blowback, which lead to people wanting more interventions. So those are my thoughts on that. Last one for this episode comes from Justin, and he's got an economics-related question, specifically having to do with the Austrian School of Economics and its stance on currency, on money, and whether or not the gold standard is the best solution to the problem of money. So getting into Justin's email, he talks about consuming Austrian economics from places like the Mises Institute, and he writes, quote, They talk endlessly about gold needing to be the currency, and I for one have absolutely zero interest in figuring out how much gold a soda should be worth and dividing it up accordingly. Well, you know, if gold was functioning as currency, that would be no differently done than, say, knowing how many cents it takes to purchase a soda. It would just be a different unit you'd be using. But anyway, back to Justin's email. I think what they mean is a source of money that can't be artificially inflated. But that's not gold. There's gold mines for a reason. There's asset forfeiture laws for a reason. And NASA spent a ton of taxpayer money drilling an asteroid a year ago for a reason. Why gold? Wouldn't oil, land, or tomatoes work just as well? 
Why do they avoid discussing diamonds? Also, is there an aspect of perpetual doom and gloom that exists as a result of not understanding the difference between their correct point, that we need a currency that doesn't suffer from artificial inflation, and their incorrect point that if it's knocked back by gold, it'll collapse? I understand Mises wasn't alive when Bitcoin was invented, but so what? Change your opinion based on new information. Adapt Bitcoin if you feel there's some aspect that doesn't work and create a Mises coin. End quote from Justin's email. All right. Now, um, we've got kind of a, a complicated answer to this question. First off, I would say, and as far as I know, most Austrian economists would agree with this, that in theory, anything that is valued among many people in a society and that is relatively wild widely available but not too abundant as to make it worthless could potentially successfully work as money and i talked about this a little bit in some of my history of the u.s dollar episodes a while back looking back through history lots of things have performed the function of money as a medium of exchange store value etc in different societies everything from seashells to cattle to tobacco to precious metals to in prisons and POW camps, cigarettes, you know, lots of different things have performed the function of money as a medium of exchange. And what the Austrian economists would say is that the best money is that which arises naturally due to market forces rather than due to government fiat. And that some things, because of intrinsic characteristics, intrinsic characteristics work better for the purpose of being money than others. And that the reason why Austrian economists mostly point to precious metals is that they would say precious metals have certain advantages over most other commodities that might potentially be money, especially in terms of a few things. And again, precious metals, they've got a lot of the the same characteristics as other commodities as far as they are valued, they're desirable, they're available, but they're not so abundant as to be worthless. I would say a few things that precious metals have more than almost anything else. First off, consistency, homogeneity, however you want to say it. If you know the weight or mass and you know the purity level, then precious metals are interchangeable. So in other words, a one ounce, 90% gold coin bar, whatever, and another one ounce, 90% gold coin bar are equivalent. They are the same. Same with silver. That's not the case of lots of other commodities. One cow is not the same value as another cow. There are differences in health, age, male versus female, whatever, right? So there's that. And you could even apply that to gemstones as well. You might have two gemstones of the same type of gem and of the same size and weight, but they're vastly different in value because with gemstones, other things contribute to the value besides just mass. That's just the way it is. You know, you can have two diamonds that are both the same amount of carats and one is way more valued than the other due to other factors. Another one is divisibility. You can break down precious metals into smaller fractions without destroying the overall value of the item. This is not the case with many other commodities. So again, use cattle as the example. A quarter of a cow, a chopped off quarter of a cow, is not worth the equivalent of a quarter of the value of one whole live healthy cow. When you subdivide the cow into pieces, 
you drastically alter the value. It's no longer the same as what one quarter of the price of a whole live cow is to sell somebody the hacked off quarter portion of a cow. It has less value because a lot of the things it could do for you are no longer available. And similarly with with gemstones and with lots of other commodities we could think of, when you start to hack them into fractions, very often just inherently you ruin a lot of the value of the object. Whereas precious metal, that just doesn't happen. And so in the colonial days of America, it was very common if you had, say, an ounce silver coin or whatever to literally cut it into pieces like a pizza. And this is where pieces of eight came from, etc. It was an eighth of a silver dollar. And again, just inherently the way people value items, precious metals don't suffer the same degradation when you subdivide them as many other commodities do. And then another thing that I can think of that precious metals inherently do better than most other commodities is what you might call um, durability or ability to store long-term without losing significant value. Cattle, over the long-term, they die, they decay, the meat rots, whatever. And so you can't store value in cattle indefinitely over time. Same is true with lots of other commodities. They, They spoil or degrade in value over time just inherently. Now, this is one that would not apply to gemstones. But this would apply to many other commodities. They'll kind of, quote-unquote, go bad over time. This is a problem, for example, with cigarettes in prisons and POW camps. Cigarettes do go bad. This is also a problem if you're storing your wealth in the form of fruits and vegetables. Unless you're willing to do dehydration or something, it's not going to work over the long term. Whereas gold and silver, very stable Gold doesn't really degrade over time. You can throw it in the ocean and it's still gold. Silver tarnishes, but it doesn't really go bad, though. Now, as far as precious metals being inflated, well, it's kind of true in that the supply of them does increase when there's mining and there's discoveries of new supplies and whatever. But most of the time, the supply of precious metals grows at a very modest pace, it tends to grow roughly in proportion with the growth rates overall of a modern economy. And in, um, I think it's Creature from Jekyll Island, the book by G. Edward Griffin about the history of the Federal Reserve, he does a good job discussing that aspect of gold and silver as money. That, yeah, you can, you can mine more gold and silver and mint more coins out of it, but there's a, there's a significant limit to how much you can increase that realistically in any given year. And so the money supply tends to grow more, it fluctuates a little bit, but it tends to grow in general, roughly alongside with the economy. And because gold and silver mining and minting of coins out of that does take human effort and labor and capital investment, there's, there's value being invested into creating new money that is not the case when you have government just creating money out of thin air. Now, all of that said, that's why Austrian economists tend to like precious metals and say they have certain inherent characteristics that make them preferable to other alternatives when it comes to money. That said, there seems to be a divide among serious Austrian economists over Bitcoin and whether it's going to work or not and so on. Bitcoin and other digital currencies certainly appear to me to have the same qualities of consistency slash homogeneity, divisibility. You know, you can divide up a Bitcoin into fractions pretty much infinitely without uh, reducing any of the value. Durability slash ability to store. It's digital, basically, as long as there is digital technology, your Bitcoins exist. And so, to me at least, it looks like 
Bitcoin and things similar to that have a lot of positive characteristics for usage as currency. Ultimately, the market will, barring any kind of fiasco or cataclysm, the market will and should decide this question. But digital currencies do seem to have many of the same advantages as precious metals and some additional advantages besides, for example, portability and convenience. Though on the other hand, there are some digital technologies and apps and things that allow gold and silver to be used to buy and sell things that have some of those characteristics as well. Bitcoin, at least, I'm not familiar with all the digital currencies, but Bitcoin does have limitations on quantity, on uh, increase, on inflation that do make monetary inflation seemingly impossible with it. Time will tell and the market will tell if these digital currencies do work out or if they've got some bugs or defects we've not figured out yet. Who knows? And if there are some bugs or defects, they might very well be fixed on the next version. But to me, at least as of right now, they offer a lot of promise. And I think the Austrian economists and other economists, for that matter, who are very much rigidly opposed to Bitcoin as as useless and worthless and whatever, I think they're missing something. In the case of those individuals, you've got just sort of, for lack of a better term, a mixture of old-fashioned conservatism slash Ludditism. Now, as to the correct Austrian school of money that actually lines up with all of their economic theory, my understanding is that the most consistent Austrian school free market solution to the question of money is to have a free market of competing currencies, wherein there is no one imposing this is money or this is money, but instead people are able to choose for themselves what they want to use to buy and sell commodities. And then the idea is that just like a market price, a natural interplay of supply and demand will cause probably a small number of things to emerge as the most widely accepted forms of money. And then these will naturally just tend to be the the things that are mostly used for transactions. Now, free competing currencies without any government involvement or interference or creation of currency on their part, this is different from the gold standard. The classic gold standard, or for that matter, silver standard, is a situation wherein the government creates money, and it's a combination of gold coins and also paper notes backed by specified amounts of precious metals. So, you know, the dollar would be defined as this many ounces of silver or that many ounces of gold. And that in a true gold standard or silver standard, the paper money is completely interchangeable and convertible to metal and vice versa at will, with no restriction on that. And I think that situation of a precious metal standard would be seen by Austrian school economists as better, as preferable, relative to unbacked government money that's paper and or digital, where the supply of money can simply be increased with almost no cost anytime the government or central bank wants to do so. So the gold standard or the silver standard is preferable to government fiat money backed by nothing and tied to nothing. A gold-backed currency can't be drastically increased in quantity arbitrarily. It has to grow with mining, which, again, usually increases the supply of gold most years by a very small amount, a couple percent. 
And so as a result, gold or silver-backed money will tend to hold its value better, be more stable over time than unbacked government currency. And you can see this if you just compare, for example, what happened to the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar over the course of the 19th century, when most of the time it was convertible into gold, silver, or both, and compare that to what has happened to the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar in about the last 40 years when it's been backed by nothing other than the fact that, for some reason, people around the world still want them, but there's no kind of solid backing for its value. You'll see a huge difference. The dollar was a lot more stable and held its value a lot better in the 19th century than in the last 40 years. So I think the Austrian answer would be that the gold standard or a silver standard is preferable to government money not backed by anything, or at least anything stable or tangible. But the problem that I would see and that I think the more consistent Austrian economists would see with something like the gold standard is that it is still a system that relies on trusting the people running the government and running the central bank, if, if there is a central bank, to exercise restraint to be honest, to make sure that the paper money supply doesn't outstrip the actual gold supplies, to make sure that the the paper money is always redeemable at will in precious metals, to never issue suspension of the gold or silver standard during emergencies or wartime or depression or whatever, and that that is unreasonable expectations to, to expect the government to be that disciplined and honest over a long period of time. So yes, to me, the most correct Austrian school of economics solution to money, the best solution from an economic and moral perspective, is to have a truly freed market in money. And I think there's every reason to believe that under such circumstances, the interplay of supply and demand in the marketplace would lead to a relatively small number of things being almost universally accepted for payment. Probably, I think, precious metals and trusted digital currencies backed by them would be one of the things that would be widely accepted. But I think there's a very good chance that Bitcoin or something similar, perhaps some other commodities even that we're not thinking of, might potentially be widely accepted if there was a free market in currency as well. And people talk about how, oh, it would be so inconvenient if there were, you know, a bunch of different forms of money, um, all, you know, competing side by side in the marketplace. It would just be so confusing and annoying. And the fact of the matter is that historically, both in recent history and going further back, there have been plenty of cases in history where you have thriving, prosperous societies where you have a lot of different kinds of, of money circulating in an economy and where you can go to a, a merchant and say, okay, I want to buy this. What's the price in gold? What's the price in silver? What's the price in this? What's the price in that? And, um, you know, merchants were pretty good at, at being able to convert. And it was doable in the past. I think it's even more doable now because digital technology, apps, all these sorts of things that allow people with the phone in their pocket to instantly check things like exchange rates, market prices, spot prices of metals, etc. These sorts of technologies make it even more easy, convenient, simple for competing currencies to be a real viable thing, to be much more feasible and convenient than ever before, in my opinion. 
So yeah, anyway, again, like I've done with the other ones, I feel the need to kind of summarize my answer at the end after rambling on a bunch. But yeah, my opinion is that those who dismiss Bitcoin and similar things out of hand are wrong, that there seems to be a lot of viability there, that my understanding from from what I've read of Austrian economics is that the gold standard is preferable to what we actually have now, which is a basically nothing but hoping someone will still want these damn things tomorrow standard, but that the best and and freest and most quote-unquote Austrian solution to money is to have competing currencies. And I think Hayek, Rothbard, and others have, have written about that even long before Bitcoin existed and whatever, that the best thing at the end of the day, even better than a gold standard, because that's still government control and intervention of what's the medium of exchange, the best solution ultimately is a free marketing currency. So thanks very much to Skip, to Decon, to Jeff, to Brett, and to Justin for these questions. I hope it's been thought-provoking to you. Thank you for listening. Either next episode or the one after next, I'll be returning to the history of slavery at least one more time to kind of wrap that up. And in addition, I've got some other things in the works for the near future. Also, I'll be posting a blurb on the website, profcj.org, about my upcoming talk at Porkfest, which is the Porcupine Freedom Festival in New Hampshire coming up in a little over a month. So keep an eye out for that announcement as well. Also, remember, if you want to help me get to Porkfest and get home from Porkfest, please consider sending in a one-time donation from PayPal or, or Bitcoin or what have you to help me get there. It's about 1,300 miles from my house to Lancaster, New Hampshire, where, where Porkfest is. And uh, I can use all the help I can get getting there and getting home. And thank you very much to those of you who have sent in such donations in recent weeks since I, since I first talked about this. But I can always use more. Um, so if you're willing and able to spare a few bucks, please, by all means. And to stay up to date on all new episodes and all announcements regarding the Dangerous History Podcast, please consider following me and the show on social media. You know, I've got Facebook and Twitter. And also consider signing up for the show email list at profcj.org. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Please check out the website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org. There you can find show notes for all the episodes, links, and other information. You can also email subscribe to the website by putting in your email in the little subscribe box off to the side there. And if you do that, you'll get an email notification every time something new is posted at the website. I promise you won't get any spam or anything uh, from me if you sign up there. You'll just get an announcement every time something new is posted on the website, which most of the time means a new episode, but occasionally is another sort of announcement or what have you. Please feel free to contact me with questions, comments, or other things. The email address is profcj at profcj.org. That's profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with the show and follow it on social media, like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, and you can find the show in podcast venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. You can subscribe there. Uh, by subscribing in iTunes, you'll help the show rise in the iTunes charts, and of course that will help grow the show's audience. If you like this show and want to see it continue to keep going and to grow and to improve, 
there are a lot of ways you can help support it. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History podcast to anyone you think might appreciate it. You can also help spread the word by leaving ratings and reviews in podcast venues like iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, we very much need and appreciate financial support. You can go to profcj.org slash donate to see a whole bunch of different ways that you would help the show out financially. One, of course, is patreon.com slash profcj, where if you pledge to help out the show with a donation of at least $1 per episode, remember, not only will I thank you by name in the next episode that I make, but you'll also have access to bonus episodes that I put there periodically that are available nowhere else. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal at profcj.org slash donate, and I have a Bitcoin address if you want to donate that way. And of course, the final way you can help out the show financially is when you do your Amazon shopping, go to Amazon through any of my affiliate Amazon links on my website. And if you do that, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small cut, a little commission from anything you purchase at no additional cost to you. Thanks again for listening. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.